nudges, movers, drivers, indicators, and structures. Yes, it's a mouthful, isn't it? Nudges, movers, drivers, indicators, and structures. So we're going to go through what they are, and I'm going to teach you the difference so you can understand what is going on, because I do find, particularly off the back of a structural boom, which is what we just have, that everyone feels like an expert when it comes to capital growth. Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show, a code cracker. We're going to dig into the science of capital growth. Yes, capital growth is a mystery to many people. A lot of property investors only succumb to capital growth when a huge structural shift transforms the marketplace. And I'm here to tell you, we can buy real estate better in the market than waiting for the giant booms that come along every now and then. We're going to look at nudges, we're going to look at market movers, market drivers, market indicators, and yes, we will touch on structural shifts which move the property market as well. So I'll tell you what, we are going to unpack a hell of a lot today. So this one is a massive lesson on capital growth. What is it? Where does it come from? What influences capital growth? We're going to talk about it and really unpack what it means to buy real estate in the right locations to get influences from a few elements like movers, drivers, nudges, indicators, and structures. Wow, does that sound complicated? I hope not. Is the show going to be good? We never know. We never know until we get to the end. But hey, it's time to crack the code of real estate wealth. Let's make some money magnets. If it's your first time tuning in, just remember the show is best played in double speed. I don't sound like a chipmunk. Get your life back. And of course, all the episodes of the Urban Property Investor are episodes or lessons on real estate. So if you like the idea of getting a few lessons on property investment, you've come to the right podcast. Uh, if you want to hear about Waffle, feel free to uh, choose a different podcast because there's no Waffle here. All right, it's time to crack on. And this episode is dedicated to a friend of mine who recently passed away. Yes, Kevin. Uh, Kevin, the coach driver. Kevin, the coach driver, has been a long-term advocate of uh, my business. He's helped me immensely understand real estate. He's one of the best property investors I've ever met. And to give you the background story, I am fascinated with the urbanity. I'm fascinated with understanding what influences are going to create capital growth when it comes to real estate, things like nudges, which we'll explore today, things like market movers, which we'll explore today. And to understand nudges and movers in the real urban world outside of listening to this podcast, uh, the best way to do that is what I often refer to as getting down with the locals. And, 
you know, there is a lot to be said with, you know, going to a place and learning what is going on at a local level. Uh, and you can do that from cab drivers, uh, you know, uh, barbershops, having a beer at the local pub. You learn so much about what a real estate community has to offer. And uh, recently, or before coronavirus, I should say, I was going to Melbourne literally every month to learn out, learn where influencers were being created, nudges and movers and drivers being created in the Melbourne marketplace. And I would get a bus. Yes, I would hire a coach and bring many of my customers along and we would all go and explore the Melbourne marketplace and understand where new hospitals were going, where new train lines were appearing, where new pocket parks were being created. And we would have a good look around the Melbourne market. And the person that showed us around, uh, Kevin, the coach driver, I would have done 50 experiences with Kevin and he was just a marvelous man and knew his nudges, knew his movers, knew his drivers, what I'm going to talk about today. So I thought I would dedicate today's show to Kevin who recently passed away from cancer. So hey Kev, um, if you're up there listening, um, I hope you like today's show. And of course, um, you've been a massive influence on my life when it comes to property investment. You knew what you were talking about and it was great to share all those tours with you. All right, so now I've explained that. It's a very sad note. Let's not be sad. Let's move on. Kev was a happy chap. I'm a happy chap. And no doubt if you're listening to this, you're a positive person. So let's explain property. Let's get into the idea that capital growth is driven off influences. Obviously, when you buy real estate, you're buying a consensus and the better an area, generally the better the consensus, the better the consensus, the better the price. And of course, the more expensive real estate tends to be. Your job as a property investor is to work out whether you want to pay for the best real estate in the marketplace, which already has a pure consensus behind it, or whether you want to buy something which is imperfect and understand whether the urban world is going to improve the consensus of the area. So today, we're going to talk about capital growth, where it comes from. As you guys know, I teach the 4X growth plan, which is buy well, choose a great location, choose a great market that's going to serve you over the long term, and behaviorally, pick yourself uh up a property which speaks the secret language of real estate. In other words, behaviorally, it attracts people to it. It could be its orientation, the way the sun flows to the property. It could be that it's a really uh, walkable property. You know, these type of influences create growth for people. But when it comes to understanding location and market, there are some micro things we need to talk about. So where does where does growth come from? What does it what pushes growth along, if you like? And I break down where growth comes from when it comes to location and market into five quadrants: nudges, 
movers, drivers, indicators, and structures. Yes, it's a mouthful, isn't it? Nudges, movers, drivers, indicators, and structures. So we're going to go through what they are, and I'm going to teach you the difference so you can understand what is going on, because I do find, particularly off the back of a structural boom, which is what we just have, that everyone feels like an expert when it comes to capital growth. And a lot of people aren't understanding that we've just been through a structural shift, which is completely different to, for example, uh, being influence positively in your local area for capital growth. It's a completely different science, right? So we're going to try and go through them all. So you're going to walk away from this podcast understanding exactly what the differences are. So I'm going to start with market nudges. Yes, market nudges. What is a nudge? Well, nudge theory is something that I just love. And certainly uh, both Kevin and I used to go around the Melbourne market looking for nudges. Nudges are just behavioural influences which are going to reframe a place. And nudge theory, if you like, is the theory that if a certain thing happens, it pushes society in a different direction. Now, the easiest way to explain nudge theory, if you like, is even using the pandemic Um, we were nudged, if you like, to stand 1.5 metres apart. And today, if you go on public transport or you, you know, go to the park, you'll you'll find probably a sign there saying, um, you know, sit 1.5 metres apart. That sign is nudging people to do a different behaviour in their in their action, right? And so we're nudged all day, and it is almost like guerrilla uh, warfare, if you like, for human beings because we are pushed in all sorts of directions, and sometimes we don't actually know we are being nudged. And this is kind of the point of the nudge. So gentrification is a real thing inside of real estate. And what we are looking for quite often is areas which are being nudged and gentrified when it comes to the idea that they are going to improve as a location. And of course, again, I'll go back to the idea of a consensus. If the consensus of an area is it's unbelievable, it's perfect, it's going to cost a lot of money to, to live there or to buy an investment there. If the consensus of a place is it's imperfect, you're buying the problem of an imperfect place. So if you go in blind to an imperfect place, you can wake up in 20 years and 30 years still in an imperfect place. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. Is imperfect a word? So we want to know what is going on and quite often the best way to understand what is going on is to get a hold of what is going on at the local council. Perhaps you're interested in in buying within, seeing what council is doing to enhance the public realm, what ideas they have to nudge a suburb forward. So some classic nudges, if you like, just to, again, explain nudge theory is 
No doubt you've walked down a pedestrian walkway and the pedestrian walkway is divided into two uh, lanes, one for cycling, one for walking. And you'll quite often see a sign, excuse me, you'll quite often see a sign that's like, well, cycle or walk, right? That's a nudge. But there are larger nudges and I love looking for larger nudges to create capital growth. And nudge theory can create around anywhere from 3 to 15% of capital growth and it can be absolutely amazing. So some classic nudges are things like pocket parks. Pocket parks are just parks which fundamentally you take a derelict space inside a suburb which has no real use, no real future use, and turn it into a nice park. And of course, what this allows the community to do is manifest better culture. Remember, real estate is about shelter, manifesting culture, and the storage of wealth. And of course, things like pocket parks coming to a neighborhood absolutely nudge that neighborhood forward. You've got other classic nudges, things like the Lime Scooter Revolution. And of course, uh, you know, those that have traveled to Brisbane and I think Melbourne's just done it. Now uh, you're seeing urbanites use transportation, which is at their doorstep. They literally get on a scooter and go scootering through a city. Now, this is a nudge. This is a nudge, one, to lessen the burden of public transport, two, to uh, lessen the burden of more cars on the road, but three, from a real estate point of view, it means you can live in a suburb rather close to the central area and not worry about transport or having a car. It means you can put more money into rent of a property in those neighbourhoods because you can use a public bicycle or a public scooter to get around. Now, again, this is just the idea that certain places are going to be nudged by this influence. And of course, this is a massive market nudge. What it does to real estate communities is it makes them more attractive. It changes the consensus of these communities. So, uh, these are awesome nudges to be to be understood. Then you've got things like brand nudges, right? And again, um, probably we've been through soy economics. I think we're up to oatmeal economics. Uh, but when it comes to brands, like for example, in certainly in Sydney and and Brisbane and Melbourne, uh, Messina ice cream, right? If you get that ice cream dealer in your neighborhood, you become a place. And again, your suburb gets nudged in the right uh, direction, in the better direction of capital growth because it becomes cooler. So all of a sudden, just having a cool retailer come to your suburb nudges your suburb forward. And again, I think one of the best nudges of gentrification today in any suburb is wellness. And wellness has come such a long, long way when it comes to the gentrification of a neighborhood. Yes, we all know there's thousands of fitness first gyms, but they don't necessarily nudge a suburb forward. But then we get like cool 
Pilates and yoga fit studios and all of these things that attract almost like the beautiful people of society um, nudge a suburb. It becomes more attractive. If you're seeing more attractive human beings walking around, generally speaking, there's an attraction to that suburb. And of course, that suburb's consensus changes because it becomes an attraction magnet. Um, And this is nudge theory, right? And there's some great nudges which I study. And of course, show going out to Kevin, my old mate. Um, We used to find nudges left, right and center around Melbourne. We used to study the Melbourne market so much that we would find things like cycleways, greenways, laneways that are being transformed and nudged, bridges which are, you know, uh, being created. And all of this improves the livability of a neighborhood. And of course, um, you know, personally, I've made a, a lot of money out of greenways, for example. Now, greenway is just the idea that council creates uh, a pathways, if you like, of green space. And so you can walk through a suburb by doing it through the green corridor. You don't have to do it through, for example, walking down the concrete jungle, right? Or the busy road. So buying near a greenway is a great market nudge to push your real estate forward. And certainly I've been blessed to be influenced by market nudges. Um, Probably one of the greatest market nudges which has propelled some of my real estate forward has been in Brisbane, whereby Brisbane has created a walkway on top of its river. It's like a, a walkable urban bridge. And so uh, if you study Brisbane River, you'll see there's pockets where you, as a pedestrian, can walk down on top of the water on the river to, you know, various locations. And the most notable one, which is out the front of one of my properties, is a walkway which basically starts at sort of New Farm Park and goes all the way to the CBD. And that particular footbridge, if you like, nudges people to instead of drive to the CBD, lime scooter or use a bicycle or walk to the CBD. It's nudging health. And the sheer fact that bridge is there has added so much value to my real estate. Even though there's been market growth from structural shift through the pandemic, the growth that happened prior to the pandemic being there, there was no capital growth in Brisbane, yet I was getting capital growth off a market nudge. There was 0% capital growth and I was getting capital growth from a market nudge, okay? So nudges are a real thing. And, you know, some of the uh, dynamics around nudges at the moment are things like accelerating technologies inside the real estate market. We're being nudged to have smart homes. Uh, We are seeing other types of nudges today with the Zoom boom happening with today people choosing to own two pieces of real estate as their own home. Of course, this is making it even harder for those that have got into the real estate market 
to even get into the real estate market. Today, people don't even want one property. If they're wealthy enough, they're carrying two properties, which are which are amazing. There are always nudges coming. And I, I like to study global nudges, things happening in New York, London. Um, there's nudges when it comes to energizing architecture. There are things that are transforming what it means to live somewhere. Obviously, wellness nudges are a massive part of the real estate marketplace. Neighbourhoods are being transformed by wellness. And again, if the consensus of your neighbourhood is it sucks, but all of a sudden trendy people come to that neighbourhood to embrace some of the wellness ideas, becomes just a better place. It's nudge forward, nudge theory at work. And of course, uh, nudges are happening, right? Um, And greenways, cycleways, they're some of the big things which are, are moving into the real estate economy, which are going to nudge places to be better. And some some suburbs will get the, the benefit of that and the capital growth of that, and some suburbs have none of that coming. So now we know what nudges are. We're going to move to market movers. Yes, what is a market mover? Now, quite often I see capital growth portrayed uh by virtue of market movers. And it it does come from market movers, but I think a lot of property investors are kind of like, well, there's a new Bunnings coming to town and that's, that's all there is, right? And there's no nudges, there's no uh, market drivers, and really all they're banking on is market movers, okay? So again, if we can get nudges, market drivers, market movers, if we can get it all, we're going to get far more capital growth off the back of what we buy inside of real estate. So again, uh, some suburbs, the market movers have already moved in and some suburbs, market movers are coming along. And again, you particularly see this in sort of new communities where the new community has sort of sprung up. It might be a new land corridor where there's really nothing out there and the sales and marketing will be, well, they're going to open a Bunnings, a Westfield and create retail, right? And so um, you might be studying the opportunity to buy in that area and obviously it has the challenge or the consensus of that area is there is no market movers to push the market along. And, you know, the best new communities, if you like, invite the major retailers to come and create jobs and move the market. And again, some older suburbs, what you are buying when you buy in the much more mature marketplaces is infrastructure efficiency. So there are already Bunnings is there, retailers there. There's already things like Westfields, great strip shopping. Um, There is the consensus is built into the price usually when it comes to that kind of thing. However, uh, for some property investors, they need to study market movers. So, you know, I'm looking, for example, at the land marketplace around Australia at the moment. And because of the rise of prices in housing, there are some horrendous land communities being created with no market movers. And these are the ones which, 
you know, most experts say be very, very wary of because there is uh, houses being built, but there are no schools. There are houses being built, but there is no retail. There are houses being built, but there is no services. And again, you know, as Australia balloons, as prices become more and more expensive, people are having to go further and further and further and further afield. And if they go uh, too far off the track, you know, they are disconnected from productivity. And think about that, right? If you've got an asset disconnected from productivity, your asset is not going to move. Yes, there's been a structural shift in real estate. Yes, prices are all worth more than they once were. But we do not want to leave the productivity zone because once we leave the productivity zone, we are, you know, we are the whims of whatever happens next, right? So market movers are good things. They are good things. Now, I might just sound a bit negative about market movers, but no, we want market movers. Now, you think about something like a Westfields, right? Westfields doesn't put a community in a place for kicks and giggles. They need a catchment zone of human beings to ensure that their retail thrives. And again, when you think about, uh, you know, where they typically, you do, you do typically find a Westfields, it's usually somewhere which is thriving. Again, it's thriving because it's got the population density to do so. So... One way to study the real estate market is to look where these big companies are going next. Where are the big retailers positioning their next major Westfields? Where is Bunnings going next? Because again, Bunnings doesn't open a store for kicks and giggles. It opens it because there's a large catchment of people to sell products to, right? So, we want to understand where are the movers and shakers going? And of course, one of the biggest movers and shakers, if you like, is publicly listed companies. Publicly listed companies uh, fundamentally drive particularly the new communities of Australia. So they are created off the back of Stocklands, Fraser's, Lendlease, Mervac. These are the big players which know where society is going to fundamentally go. And so if you're understanding where they're playing, what markets they want to move, you can then make an association whether you want to buy into that market or whether you want to avoid that marketplace, whether that marketplace is going to become something incredible or whether it's going to lack the infrastructure efficiency to become good. So nudges, nudges are a great way to create capital growth and market movers are a great way to find capital growth. And again, market mover is typically explained in property that a Coles is going to open. Now, though that sounds unimpressive, it's still moving the market. The fact that a Coles has decided to come to a precinct is a is a good thing for, again, the suburb itself. 
So a lot of these market movers tend to happen in newer established communities because in older established communities, you've typically already got the infrastructure efficiency. And what you find with market movers in more older marketplaces is the upgrade of those precincts. So classic example in Brookvale, Warringah Mall, Northern Beaches, massive catchment of people, an institution, it's like a Westfields if you like for the Northern Beaches of Sydney and it was a shithole for a very, very long time. Um, It was beneath the socio status of the area and again, like People were shopping almost below their pay grade in that mall. What does uh, the company that owns that do? Well, they go, they realize that. They go, well, let's upgrade uh, Warringah Mall. And all of a sudden, now it's got better brands, it's got better shops. It's, it's more in line with the socioeconomic status of its community. And you'll see this where retailers fall below where the social status is of the community and then go through a gentrification. They move the market. And again, that particular mall is a classic example of now, like if you were moving to the Northern beaches of Sydney for the first time, you never knew the history of that mall. You would go and go, wow, you know, it's got great malls. The consensus is now loaded into the price that the Northern beaches finally has a good uh, version of Westfields, right? And so uh, the consensus is now loaded in the price. So when people shop in the northern beaches of New South Wales, of Sydney, they're going to pay for the fact that that retail has now upgraded. And so people inside the society are like, I've got better, I've got better retail. So my house price is better. This is the idea of the market mover. Remember, we're starting with nudges. We've just been through movers. Now we're going to go to drivers, which is something I love, right? And again, drivers are huge influences on capital growth in the real estate market. Now, there are six market drivers when it comes to real estate. There's population, infrastructure, economics or where employment is, right? Employment, demographics, supply and demand, and yield performance. These are the drivers. This is the six market drivers of real estate. Not to be be confused with market movers or market nudges. So again, like as I've alluded to, like population plays a part, right? If you've got a declining population, you know, you've got people leaving your community, you are going to see a correlation on what that looks like when the property market adjusts. If you've got an aging population, you know, at some point that's going to catch up with you because people are going to start to leave the workforce. And if there's less people taking up jobs, there's less people borrowing money. And if there's less people borrowing money, there's less people buying property, right? So we want a young Uh, mission fit workforce to prop up the property marketplace. Population economics is a massive, massive conversation in Australia. I've done a podcast on population economics. That 
really is a, a fagazi for many communities that really the, the conversation of those communities is just build a house, create a coffee shop, start a Coles and move the market. But there is actually no fundamentals behind those areas when it comes to depth of market, depth of industry. They are one horse towns, if you like. So population is a thing. We want uh, a good population center. You can use things like Population ID, which is a great government website, which helps you understand the future population performance of a suburb or a, or a local government area. And again, like some local government areas are going to explode by 600%. And the reason they're going to explode by 600% is no one's ever lived there before. Uh, typically the inf infrastructure efficient communities, the older communities are going to grow by like 40% because people already live there, right? So you've got to read between the lines, like, um, you know, sometimes population corridors, if you like, are touted as growth corridors, but they're the growth of the population, not to be confused with the growth of the property market. That may happen, but it's not a growth marketplace for property. It's a growth marketplace for population. Uh, just to understand the language behind that. Infrastructure is a massive, massive player when it comes to capital growth, right? The more infrastructure, the more a city is being renovated, the more major projects going on, it really does drive capital growth. And again, infrastructure, if you like, is almost like the lag effect of capital growth. It is a lag indicator. It's not so much a leading indicator. Like there are infrastructure projects due and it does not create capital growth. But once that infrastructure is built and used and years later is seen as successful, it creates capital growth. So again, quite often, I think a lot of property commentators will put, for example, coals coming to town as a market mover as infrastructure growth. That is not infrastructure growth. That is a market mover. That is coals opening in your neighbourhood. It's, it's a great thing. It could be a great thing, but it is not infrastructure growth. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Economics, obviously, as you know, I'm a major fan of buying in areas which the diversity of the population is influenced by a large amount of economics. So, you know, there's lots of jobs, there's lots of activity, there's the ability to interface with various marketplaces of industry. And again, I think we can all take a look at small areas when their one industry suffers and you'll see some of obviously the correlating challenges when it comes to property values. Just the way it is, right? You know, I've bought real estate in regional communities which rely on cotton. Uh, I wasn't buying real estate. I was buying cotton. I never knew I was buying cotton until I owned the real estate. Then I realized that my real estate won't propel unless the price of cotton dramatically changes. Then a cotton drought comes then there's no rain. Then all of a sudden you're like, holy cow, I'm so connected to cotton, I didn't even realize. So uh, diverse economies, obviously, and for our tenants, we want to give them the opportunity to live close to employment nodes, right? It doesn't need to be the city, but it does need to be an employment node. 
So that is what we often refer to as PI, population, infrastructure, employment, or economics. So they are the first three of the market drivers. Remember, we have market nudges, we have market movers, we're now into market drivers. And the, the other three drivers, if you like, aren't part of PI, but are absolutely market drivers. Demographics. Demographics is massive, right? When you think about millennials today starting to factor in they want to have children, they're going to need a different space than they did five years ago. Uh, Today, there's a lot of loner livers. Around 50% of the world is going to end up living by themselves. That is going to have a huge demographical influence on the real estate marketplace, what people want when it comes to space. Downsizers are very sophisticated buyers. What they want from real estate is very short in supply. They want larger two and three bedroom apartments, which are immaculately designed. Uh, They want them in their local area. They want them close to where they've lived. So there is a massive undersupply of that product. I love that product because it is undersupplied. I'm amalgamating one and two bedroom apartments at the moment to factor in that there is a massive demographic shift towards comfortable living in a uh, compact space. And so that in itself to me is a moneymaker, right? So again, there are drivers which are going to influence the real estate marketplace. And I think when capital growth stops, you'll find that, you know, once the structural context of capital growth stops, which we'll talk about structural change, you do see things like the demand left over for young families, for example, who need an affordable start and an affordable property that they can have two or three kids in. That that marketplace is just phenomenal, right? And so if you can find quite often what I refer to as the affordable and livable supply gap, you find the demographic that needs that marketplace. Everyone is looking for something affordable yet highly livable and at that is chasing demographics, which I think is one of the great growth drivers of the market itself. Supply and demand is obviously a growth driver metric. These are kind of what I often refer to as momentum trends, like they do influence the marketplace from a macro level. They are market drivers. Supply versus demand, like let's face it, if there's too much stock, there's uh, and not enough buyers, you know, the real estate market is is not going to go up. This is not going to work, right, until that balance is restored. And so right now we're completely undersupplied. I think we've incredibly, uh, we are incredibly undersupplied. Like we are in a real property challenge at the moment, particularly when it comes to the rental market. There's just not enough rental properties. And of course, um, all of a sudden, we need thousands, tens, hundreds of thousands of new migrants to prop up the economy. So, you know, there's just not the stock around at the moment. So supply is certainly in the favor of today's property investor. In other words, there's more demand than there is supply. Uh, Demand can weaken, sentiment can weaken. That's just 
a uh, another part of this puzzle, but when it comes to the pure economics, is enough development applications going through to be turned into properties, to be turned into homes? The answer is no. And uh, there are so many, so many moving parts to that puzzle at the moment. There are things like the cost to deliver the product, uh, the shortages of skills to deliver the product. So again, like there's just not enough being created. And, you know, from where I sit, you know, I can't see a rebound in a balanced marketplace where supply and demand sort of normalize and become equal till like 2025, 26. So it is what it is, right? The next uh, growth driver of the market is yield performance, right? The yield and its variation. And, and what you often see is at the bottom of the market, the yield is at its highest point. So you can very much analyze the real estate market quite often using the conversation of yield, yield compression or variation. So, you know, typically at the bottom of the market, yields can be as high as 6%. And uh, when the market, you know, reaches its peak, they can drop to as low as, you know, 2%, right? And so depending on the marketplace, how uh, the marketplace has historically performed, the variations can be very, very different. And so, Again, um, yields obviously pay a part. The strong, the mo- the the better off the the return is. Quite often, that means there's a lot of investors that want to participate in that marketplace. So, market drivers uh, are a massive player when it comes to real estate performance. And and I think you know I touched on the idea that. There are six. There is supply and demand, demographics, yields, there is population, there are jobs, and there is infrastructure. And and I think infrastructure is the one market driver which confuses a lot of people. A lot of people associate uh, infrastructure with, as I alluded to, a a Westfields coming. Uh, A Westfields is a market mover, not essentially a massive infrastructure project. So when we study infrastructure, it's kind of broken down into three stages of impact, if you like. You've got when the project is announced, there is an impact stage. When construction starts, impact. And when construction is completed and the infrastructure is operating, massive impact. And I would say that a lot of property investors kind of do see projects get announced and, you know, perhaps they like the idea of that project and understand that the tailwind of that is going to create growth. But I do often see a lot of people sort of, I don't know, like they 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 buy in an area because they know infrastructure is coming, but the tailwind has not reached them. And they start to question themselves, well, does this infrastructure do anything to my capital growth? And and it really doesn't until it's operating. And so um, you've got when it's announced, when it starts, and when it's operating, right? These are the kind of three stages of impact, if you like. And again, they all have various 
levels of of growth and return. So there are some uh, some massive massive infrastructure projects that are underway. If you think about Western Sydney's new airport, um, I mean that in itself is is going to be complete in 2026. Hopefully, there's more planes in the sky, or we'll have a airport that doesn't uh, necessarily. I don't know have planes landing at it, but I'm sure you know the world will be traveling by then. But again, that is an aerotropolis, which is huge. It's going to add an extra 300,000 people just to its neighborhood by virtue of the airport coming. So you can see how the infrastructure is going to actually create jobs and the infrastructure is going to actually bring people. This is this is awesome. This is what you want to see when it comes to property investment. Now, obviously, a lot of people bought around this area when the infrastructure project was announced. Uh, a lot of people uh, have bought here because the infrastructure is starting to be built. And the biggest beneficiary will be definitely later in the piece when the infrastructure is operating, this will be a hive of activity. And again, look, um, if it's it's a little bit like a stock, right? If you buy early in the piece, you're going to get the best amount of opportunity from the infrastructure. But don't be surprised if you buy early based on an announcement and that announcement gets shelved because there's a change of government. So you probably, if you are buying for growth of infrastructure, you probably, for example, want to uh, consider when construction starts to be a real impactful part of that infrastructure journey. Now, think about the 2032 Olympics. Like I've known about this plan since about 2016 and uh, it's certainly been something that, you know, Lord Mayors have have often talked about to ignite the Brisbane, uh, the Brisbane city itself, and you can see that there are massive infrastructure projects inside of Brisbane to mirror what is going to happen with the Olympic Games eventually coming in twenty thirty two. So the announcement of running for the Olympics, then the Olympic bid gets approved and now you're in this phase of construction starting inside of southeast Queensland to accommodate the completion of the Olympic Games. And really is a cracking opportunity for property investors because we know the deadline. We we kind of it's probably one of the only places in the world where you can go well we know when this stuff is going to be complete and operating 2032. And so you've got some pretty major pieces of infrastructure which are in their early stages. And of course, the flow and effect of what that does to Southeast Queensland will make it a cracking marketplace for the next 30, 40 years without question. So you really can't go wrong. That's the point of this kind of infrastructure. But let's face it, the infrastructure of the Olympic Games is huge compared to a Coles opening in your local community, right? And this is what I'm trying to allude to. Like infrastructure is is huge projects, right? You've got, for example, in Brisbane, the Cross River Rail, 5.4 billion. 
the M1 duplication freeway, 1.5 billion. The Gateway, 2.1 billion. Brisbane Live, 2.1 billion. Queen's Wharf, which I just love, 3.6 billion. The airport, it's just been upgraded, 1.35 billion. Queen's, uh, sorry, the Gabba, $1 billion upgrade. Brisbane Metro, $1.2 billion. So again, these are these are massive amounts of infrastructure being created to move uh, the market, right? They, they, they are going to shift the market and drive the market. They are a market driver. And so you've got market movers, you've got market nudges, and you've now seen an example of a market driver, right? So then we've got indicators, growth indicators. Now, again, this is more micro growth, right? This is some of the things you look for that are going to create growth if you look at at a more localized level. And again, this is the stuff I used to love doing with Kevin, the coach driver, we used to go around and, and uh, you know, prior to coronavirus, you know, just get on the ground and look for some of these some of these influences that were unfolding. Of course, you look at the data first, but then you go out in the street, right? And that's the point of being a property investor. It's a lot of fun. So growth indicators are things like past performance, right? Like what is, what is the past performance of capital growth of the neighborhood? How do we determine if that's good or bad, right? These are some of the things we have to work through. The past rental growth performance, what does it look like in a neighborhood? Is it a neighborhood where people want to rent? Has it got fairly good consistency of rental returns? Is it up and down like a yo-yo as a rental market? What is the weighted average of length of the vacancy rate? Like what is that? And so these are the type of things that you really at a granular level look at. Is it an affordable suburb? Is it too unaffordable for too many Australians to want to buy in at once based on where interest rates are at and where the cost of living is at? You know, quite often as a property investor, we have to buy affordable properties. And I, and I say this all the time, like if you couldn't, if you didn't need to buy affordable properties, Go buy the best properties. That's as simple as it as you as it needs to be in real estate. You do not even need to take the risk of affordability. You can go straight to aspirational prestige if you can afford it. But if you can't, if you've got six hundred thousand dollars, then you've got to look at where the affordability and the livability match each other. And we often refer to this as socioeconomics. If you're buying something very affordable but the socioeconomics is that people really are scared to live there, that is not a good combination. You want affordability where people love to live there, not whom are scared to live there. And there are a lot of ghettos, a lot of ghettos in Melbourne, Brisbane, Sydney. You know, there's a lot of places where you'd go, wow, like you see them on the news most nights, right? Some bloke's doing a drive-by shooting and putting shotgun pellets in the side of houses in these neighborhoods. They're just not safe neighborhoods. They're affordable, but they're not safe. You want affordable yet livable. These are growth indicators. And I study mapping to go, well, where is the affordable and where is the highly livable? And so you can... See, the two correlate nicely together and these are growth indicators. 
Other growth indicators are things like benchmarks, right? Like you can benchmark where your price is, where the median value of real estate is, and where the top value of real estate is. And in quite often in real estate, we kind of teach that is that there's percentiles inside of a suburb. So there's the top 25% of stock, there's the middle 50% of stock, and there is the lower 25% of stock inside a real estate marketplace. What we want to do is buy in that 50, uh, middle 50% of stock, which is the good stock of the marketplace, but also understand where the best stock is so we can kind of piggyback off it, that we can get these kind of growth indicator. You know, quite often it's called worst house, best street theory. I don't like that. I like buying, um, you know, a better house in the best street because I just like the idea of stability and long-term results. Um, I like the idea of getting a good rental return. So I, you know, in 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 the algorithm, if you like, you've got the bottom twenty five percent, the middle fifty percent, and the top seventy five percent of stock. Um, you know, I like being in the middle fifty to the top seventy five. That's that's where I sit. Other people have differences of opinion. Um, some great property investors have completely different opinions to me. That's cool. Uh, I respect their opinion. I. Uh, have a difference of opinion. I think that the better capital growth comes from the better assets. Remember, real estate growth comes from three quadrants. These are your growth indicators. Quadrant one, the best land. Quadrant two, the best location. Quadrant three, the best building. They're the growth indicators. So we've got nudges. We've got movers. We've got drivers. And we've got indicators. Other indicators, for example, are the days on market, right? How long does the clearance of real estate happen? Now, what is considered normal in real estate is around a 90-day clearance. 90 days is considered what we would call a balanced market. Neither the seller nor the buyer is in charge, right? That's a balanced marketplace. If the clearance rate in a neighborhood is larger than 90 days, then the buyer is in charge. If the clearance rate is less than 90 days, then the seller is in charge of the marketplace. And so, you know, of recent times, you know, clearance rates have been like 30 days, right? So the sellers have all been fundamentally in charge of the marketplace. So there's been more buyers than there is sellers and the days on market are very, very low. That doesn't always unfold that way. And again, these are the growth indicators you look for. And, you know, what has provided consistent capital growth for me is studying the average days on market of a marketplace and seeing that if it's consistently under 90 days, consistently a seller's marketplace and if it's consistently a seller's marketplace albeit you know the odd trend where we you know we've been through a lockdown or something then it's consistently a seller's marketplace so you've got more growth because the seller is constantly in charge and i love marketplaces like that they are very much oligolopies which i can never say they're very much where the seller is always holding the trump cards. These are growth indicators. Uh, the ripple effect, great growth indicator. Like if a suburb next door to another suburb has skyrocketed in value, there is a correlation that that value will 
generally drift to the next suburb. And again, the consensus of that next suburb may be a bit of a dump, but you need to understand, well, is it going to be nudged? Are there market movers coming? Are there macro market drivers? And are there good indicators around? These are This is kind of what you look for, right? And so growth indicators are a massive, massive way to look at the real estate marketplace as well. Remember nudges, movers, drivers, indicators. The final part of the puzzle, the fifth part of the puzzle is the structural shift real estate markets go through. Now, again, like if we look at the capital growth over the last sort of 24 months, it's been pretty good, but it has been a structural shift. It has not been because of nudges. It has not been because of drivers. It has not been because of movers. It's been because there is a structural shift. And again, structural shifts come along. They're like once in a blue moon. And so we need to understand once the structural shift disappears, we want to be left with a place which is connected to nudges, drivers, movers, and of course, indicators, which is going to leave our capital growth performing nicely at a 5 6 7% growth rate for the years to come. There'll obviously be years where there's no growth, but the point of the conversation is the growth will catch up and there will be more consistent growth, right? Hopefully that's kind of making sense because I think what perverts all of this is a structural shift in the marketplace. Now, I've explained this before on the podcast. I'll explain one more time so that you guys are across it so you can walk away going, okay, I get it. Structural shifts come. I need to wait for the next structural shift to see the next massive boom which is going to be when, but until then, I need to make sure that I'm following the logic of what Sags is saying. Sags is saying I need nudges, I need drivers, I need movers, uh, I need um, the level of demand in the marketplace, right, which is going to drive my uh, real estate success. Now, again, we have to understand that there are demand drivers as well, right? There are demand drivers. And I, these these are the ones which come along and put an end to the party for a little bit, really. Like, you know, they are the things which basically slow down the marketplace. They can speed it up or they can slow it down. And, you know, quite often they're like, oh, you know, if it was a party, you'd be like, who invited these guys, right? And I'm going to go through the demand drivers. First demand driver is the availability credit. Like how easy is it to get a property loan? If, it, if it's easy to get a property loan, there's going to be more people buying property. If it's harder to get a property loan, there's going to be less people buying property. That's how it works, right? That's just the way it works. The price of credit, is it cheap? Like right now it's ridiculously cheap. It's a bit perverted. It's so cheap. Interest rates will eventually go up. The price of credit will eventually go up. What that looks like into the future, you know, potentially over the short term will scare a few people. Uh, but fundamentally, I think we're going to be in a fairly low rate environment for quite a while, um, despite um, some of the challenges we're seeing around the globe. Eventually, though, interest rates are going to go up. It's a fact. Like they can't, like it's not healthy 
that they sit where they sit at the moment. So the price of credit will change. This will meddle with the idea of demand. Employment rate messes with the demand. Like if there's high unemployment, there's obviously low demand for real estate right now. We're in a low unemployment rate and there's high demand for real estate, right? So it kind of moves. And uh, really, you know, the last time the unemployment rate was over 10% was back in sort of 1992, 1993, right? So again, uh, we're quite blessed in this country at the moment. There's certainly a lot of jobs. But if that was to reverse, then you've got less demand because, you know, people going to work and going, wow, Bob's not here anymore. That's not a nice feeling, right? And when, when that's not a nice feeling, sentiment changes in the marketplace. Obviously, demand drivers can be influenced by tax, like real estate is tax efficient. Um, if people meddle with the tax system, it can meddle with the real estate system. And of course, politicians are probably one of the, the biggest coolers, if you like, of the real estate marketplace with some of their opinions on real estate, right? So we've got to understand that the last two years has been a structural shift in real estate. It's as simple as that. And I love when these structural shifts come along because they make you a lot of money if you own real estate. And they change the price of real estate forever. And quite often we have this conversation, well, how can a, I don't know, $600,000 one-bedroom apartment ever be worth $800,000. And I've been doing this to myself for the last 30 years. I've been like, wow, how can that $180,000 house ever be worth $300,000? Um, and every time I kind of guess this logic of my brain, I have to check myself because really what happens is markets go through a restructure, a restructure of the price of money, the restructure of what people do, what people want, restructure of how governments use money. And um, we've seen some massive restructures over the years inside of Australian real estate. Now, I'm going to go back to the 1970s. Uh, back in the 1970s when I was born, my mum didn't work. She didn't need to work because... She had three kids. She was a busy home mum, and our family didn't need two incomes because the cost of living only required one income. And because the cost of living required only one income, only generally in most families, one parent worked, whether it was the mum or the dad. However, all of a sudden, uh, back then, there was the opportunity where more jobs were needed and the cost of living started to go up and two people started to work. A lot of women entered the workforce and I don't want to be accused of sounding like a chauvinist, it's just what happened back then. A lot of women became workers and you started to see what we refer to as a double income family. Because all of a sudden there was two incomes in the family structure back in the 1970s, house prices doubled. Why did they double? Because everyone had more money. There were two incomes, not one income. So this was one of the first structural shifts we saw in real estate after World War II. By the 1990s, we saw the deregulation of banks. So prior to the 1990s, to go and get a property loan, a home loan was a difficult thing to do. You had to rock up, go down the bank, put the suit and tie on, 
and hope you could impress the bank manager enough that he would sign off on giving you a home loan. Uh, In fact, um, my father tells the story that when they bought their second house back in the 80s, ladies couldn't even borrow money. They couldn't be on the loan documents. That's how different the world was back then. So you couldn't even use their income to service a loan. And eventually, this all got deregulated. And eventually, common sense prevailed and people of all genders could borrow money. And of course, uh, the ability to borrow money became much easier. And we went from typically buying houses in Australia where you had to put a 20 or 30% deposit down back in the 60s, 70s and 80s. By the 90s, you were seeing things like 10% deposits, even 5% deposits. This loosening up of the banking system absolutely changed it. The, the structure of the marketplace. And you saw huge amounts of capital growth. The real estate market doubled in three years. A structural shift, a structural shift. By the early 2000s, you saw another structural shift. Uh, you had the mining boom. Australians were not high income earners. Wages were not huge prior to the early 2000s. Mining happened inside Australia and people could go to mines in the middle of nowhere, drive a truck and get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars. And of course, this was a huge infrastructure boom because the mines needed massive amounts of infrastructure to increase their tonnages to create more output to send more minerals around to emerging economies, places like China and India. All of a sudden, our wages in the cities, in the countries, in the mining community spiked. They virtually doubled. Our wages doubled uh, back then. There were even for you know jobs which added uh, you know very very low skill levels to a company. Their wages went up, and so you saw, for example, uh, a receptionist who was typically on $35,000 a year end up on $65,000 a year being a receptionist. And like, not to say, you know, not to pick on receptionists, but just to explain that the market changed the structure of that job, not the human being. The human being added no more value, like didn't answer 50 more calls a day, the structure of the market changed. So in the early 2000s, the structure of the market changed so much that the real estate market went on to double. Then we had the GFC. GFC, again, changed the structure of the marketplace. Some marketplaces ended up being quite impacted and losing value off the GFC. But equally, this is where we saw the first use of stimmies. And so the government back then... Um, started to give a lot of free grants, if you like, to first home buyers. And that really kicked off a, a land grab and all the available land disappeared, very much like what we just went through recently. Land disappeared. Um, there was not a lot of stock. A lot of first home buyers were encouraged to go into the marketplace. A lot of this unfolded in Sydney and Melbourne and all of a sudden we saw off the back of the GFC by, you know, the early 2010 era, um, you were seeing these marketplaces 
get huge amounts of growth and you saw them double in value. Which leads us to the pandemic. Obviously, in 2020, we got news of the pandemic. The government decided, well, we need to do something here. We're going to stimulate the marketplace. We're going to give a lot of grants. We're going to push people into becoming first home buyers. We're going to prop up the construction section of the marketplace. We need to make sure the structure of the economy works and we're going to use a trillion dollars to stimulate that. And uh, that combined with the knowledge boom of, for example, the Zoom boom, where people could start to, for example, explore where they want to live better, you saw a huge structural shift in the marketplace, a real spatial structural shift where people are like, well, if I'm going to spend more time at home, I need to, I need a lifestyle suburb. I need somewhere I can walk the dog, um, you know, get a nice coffee. I need uh, something highly affordable and highly livable. And so we saw this massive structural shift from people all over the country looking for this key ingredient of capital growth. But a lot of it as well was a structural shift of, of stim, stimmies, basically um, stimulants from the government put into the marketplace. And if anything, there's probably been too many stimulants which have created an even bigger than Ben-Hur boom, right? It's been massive. But it is a structural shift, a structural shift, and they come along sort of every so often. And if you track them, you know, really you're talking sort of every 15 years or so, there is a structural shift. The next structural shift for property investors to be excited about, of course, will come in the 2030s, around sort of 2032, 2034, 2036. You're going to see a lot of money change hands. And the reason it's going to change hands is a lot of the builder generation, which is the generation before the baby boomer, and the baby boomer generation, which has the largest concentration of wealth in it, is going to reach an age where they're probably going to start to very much pass away. And again, if we look at, for example, around the world in Western countries, 70% of the wealth is held by the baby boomer generation or above that, 70% of the wealth. And if you think about where millennials are at at the moment, I mean, most of them have nothing other than a loan to the bank, right? And even Generation X has around sort of, uh, you know, a small proportion of this overall wealth which is out there in the world. And when baby boomers pass away in the in particularly uh, the older baby boomers, some of the younger baby boomers will keep on living. But there is said to be a record level of money change hands through the idea of inheritance. Uh, something like $224 billion of super and property and shares, which will change hands, $224 billion. Now, think about the structural shift we've just been through, which is, is really the federal government stimulating the economy with uh, something like a trillion dollars. Now, not all of that, obviously, was spent in stimulation. Half of it was spent on things like JobKeeper, which, you know, um, was, you know, was just 
helping people out in a bloody tricky situation, right? It wasn't it wasn't a, a stimmy in the respect that it it pushed a business in a certain direction or you know created a financial gain for someone. But there was if you if you were to say like at least half a billion dollars of the money spent um and I'm using you loose numbers, let's 400, 300 billion dollars of the money spent went to create a stimulus for the marketplace. As you can imagine, if we've got 224 billion dollars coming from inheritance in the 2030s, that in itself is going to create a massive structural shift. All of a sudden, younger people who are probably older by then um, will have a lot of money and no doubt what they will want to do is spend that on lifestyle upgrades. And when that money flows, that lifestyle upgrade will mean people will be, again, structurally changing the marketplace and you'll see, no doubt, a massive boom. So the point of this conversation is, will the $700,000 house become the $1.1 million house in the next 15 years, I absolutely believe it will. Because if you go back to what I've been talking about, and if you buy in the right places, you're going to get capital growth from nudges if you buy in the right places. You'll get capital growth from market movers, things like you know, better retail, better services, better town planning. You'll get things from capital growth through the massive infrastructure spends Australia you know, typically does drive, it drives the market result. It gets results because it invests in itself. Now, again, you think about some countries of the world, like you can't drive down the street without falling into a pothole. And I often hear this from immigrants that come to Australia, just how amazing Australia looks after its infrastructure compared to the rest of the world. Um, Quite often, if you've never traveled, you probably don't see what happens in continents in Asia or Africa or even America or the Americas or South Americas. So, you know, we we uh, we drive and move this market um, in a big way here in Australia, which is great, right? We are constantly bringing more people in. We are constantly thinking about, well, our society needs to be better. Let's nudge it. Let's move it. Let's drive it. And of course, if you know how to go a little bit macro, you can find some really good indicators, which, um, you know, prove that real estate can work. And a lot of that is done through data and research, but also getting on the ground. And there will be another structural shift coming your way as a property investor. So do I think property investment is still a good thing in Australia? Yes, I do. I think uh, you should buy as much of it as you possibly can and invest wisely because certainly the future seemingly will take us in a direction where there is more growth to be had. But do it wisely. Make sure you invest in the right neighbourhoods or neighbourhoods where the consensus is going to change. That's the point of being a property investor. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. I will catch you next time as we talk more real estate in this uh, crazy world. All right, guys, see you then. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. And I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media. 
over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.